Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, the one and only, the amazing Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Oh, you know, just enjoying a quiet week of TV news, Leslie. I mean, we always make jokes about how uh, quiet things are, and then they're not quiet. This week really is quiet other than, you know, a multi-billion dollar merger, but, you know, whatever on that one. Yeah, I would like to think, think that the TV gods had uh, mercy on a lot of the TV reporters' souls and slowed, slowed their roll and let us get some rest and catch up on things. But it also allowed us to do a mailbag segment this week, and we might do one next week also, so a friendly reminder for the first time in this podcast, but probably not the last, that if you want to ask us any questions at all, you can reach us at TV's Top 5, that's the number 5, at THR.com. Please do. We like your questions. Well, that takes us into this week's headlines. Leading off, HBO has picked up a female-focused skateboarding comedy called Betty, which is based on and features the original stars from indie Skate Kitchen. Netflix is looking for a Gilmore Girls to call its own and has picked up mother-daughter drama Ginny and Georgia. Phoebe Robinson, the star of Two Dope Queens, will host an interview show for Comedy Central. NBC is looking to the 80s and one of my favorite movies to inspire a new potential series and is developing a modern take of Brat Pack feature St. Elmo's Fire. This is where you cue Man in Motion, Dan. Do you hear the music? I do. I hear it. Anyway, uh, moving on, the salaries for the BH90210 stars have been revealed. $70,000 per episode for six episodes with Tori Spelling and Jenny Garth getting an extra $15,000 per for co-creating it. And Jason Priestley getting another 46000 for directing an episode. And based on the drop in ratings uh, in week two, worth every penny. I mean, that's a, that's quite low, if you ask me. I mean, when you compare, like, you, know, you look at the Will and Grace money that they got. It was 250000 per episode for season one, and then that bumped up to three hundred and fifty per. And that's for all four stars. And it's pretty crazy, considering how cheap this show is. I mean, they shot it in Vancouver, so I guess what do you expect? <laughs> Elsewhere, NBC's forthcoming streaming service has picked up a Queer's Folk reboot and a YA drama called One of Us is Lying. Both of those were previously in development at Bravo and E! respectively, as NBC continues to kind of rearrange the deck chairs. And last but certainly not least, Apple kind of sort of revealed its first look at The Morning Show, the drama series featuring Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, and Steve Carell. Only the teaser didn't feature any actual footage and none of the stars were seen at all. Yeah, I would actually say that that one was last and really probably least. Yeah, it was weird. And when you say first look, it's really more of a first sound. 
It's like, here's some set pieces. It was truly bizarre. I just, you know, Apple, we think of Apple as being so good at playing the games that they play, and they're so good at unraveling and unveiling products and getting people excited for things. Given how good they have been at such things in the past, it is astonishing how badly so far they are rolling this out, which has nothing at all to do with the eventual quality of these shows. They could all be spectacular. We don't know, because again, we've seen zero seconds of footage from this show. We've kind of heard a couple sanctimonious rants about the media that really could have come from a second tier version of Newsroom. So as of now, that's the assumption I'm going for, that the morning show is a second tier version of Newsroom. Prove me wrong, Apple. <laughs> Fair assessment. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, Merger Mania continues as Viacom and CBS have agreed to re-merge. Viacom CEO Bob Backish will lead the combined company as president and CEO. CBS's acting chief, Joe Ionello, will remain on board and oversee all CBS-branded assets. It's the latest merger to sweep the entertainment industry after Disney and Fox and AT&T and Time Warner. The Viacom-CBS deal is expected to close by year's end and see the company save a combined $500 million. The two companies were last merged in 2000. That lasted for five years. There's basically just a lot going on with the story. And here to break it all down, we're joined again by THR's executive editor, Matt Bellany. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Hi there. Welcome. Can I start by asking a, you know, probably the stupidest imaginable question on this? How is this going to impact me? <laughs> well, it's going to be CSI Daily Show, the new fall series. No, no. That, it's, it's, that's actually a good answer. I'm, <laughs> I'm intrigued by that. <laughs> no, I mean, for the average TV consumer, I don't think there's going to be much change. What you're going to see, I think, is a gradual winnowing down of the traditional TV offerings and a push towards streaming. So whereas you have all of these millions of cable channels that are all out there struggling for an audience. Viacom owns a bunch of those. They own CBS MTV. owns a couple more. Yeah, they own MTV, they own Nickelodeon, they own VH1, they have a bunch of Comedy other... Central, BET. Paramount Network, you know, a couple more you probably aren't even familiar with. And, you know, they got to figure out what they want to do with those. And getting bigger helps them for ad sales because they can combine the efforts of those two divisions. But ultimately, long term, they've, they've got to figure out what the Viacom CBS strategy is for the streaming era. Luckily, CBS was smart about this a few years ago in starting CBS All Access, which has had, you know, as you guys know, a modicum of success in bringing in some new viewers. I don't know what the programming is to your taste, but it's a lot of Star Trek. Yeah, but yeah. so but that's what people like, right? Alleg people. Allegedly, the, <laughs> yeah. it's got the CBS All Access execs were just at TCA saying that they had eight million combined subs with Showtime's streaming platform and hope to get to what 25 million in by 2022. I mean, it's a good platform, but then again, Viacom has BET Plus, their streaming service which is coming out next year. They have Pluto TV, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. Mostly to say what is Pluto TV, but still. <laughs> still, they, they have but a lot of streaming But it is a platform. It does yeah. exist. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of streaming opportunities within both companies. But I'll give you an example. For instance, Star Trek, which is being heavily exploited at CBS on the television side, the film rights to Star Trek were at Paramount, 
which was at Viacom. So it was split amongst the companies doing their own separate things. Presumably, now having them all under the same roof, you could create a Star Trek cinematic universe similar to what Marvel has done at Disney where the movies could play into the TV shows and play into consumer products and all of the you know great things associated with Star Trek to further serve the Star Trek fan in multiple platforms. And that's exactly what Disney is doing with Disney Plus because all of those Marvel shows that they've done in the past have been lightly... And that's being generous connected to the cinematic universe. So that's a big. That's a yeah. Big now point. what are we going to get a Loki show and Jeremy Renner's doing one for you know for yeah, Hawkeye? Yeah, there's like two or three for Disney Plus that are all being handled and overseen by the film division, even though they're limited series. Right, and when you saw their Comic Con presentation for Marvel, I mean they were plugging the TV stuff on Disney Plus just as much as they were plugging the movie stuff, and that's by design. It's to get people to feel like they need to see these digital Disney Plus shows in order to fully experience the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And imagine if Viacom and CBS could do that for Star Trek. But why was it the right thing to do to separate in 2005? And why is it the right thing to do to come back together now? Like, it, it seems like a sort of wishy-washy way of... <laughs> well, I don't know though if it's the right thing. Let's keep in mind. I, I know what the strategy sure. and the stated expressed intent was. And when they split the companies, that was a financial thing. They thought at the time that they could, you know, to use the corporate term, unlock more value if they split up the assets and allowed CBS, which was this, you know, very tried and true broadcast network platform to exist on its own. And Viacom, which at the time had all of these sexier, you know, MTV, VH1, all of the quote-unquote growth assets to be the growth product. That has almost flipped on its head now because the cable channels are perceived as struggling in this digital universe. And CBS, which has this platform, has Showtime, which has its own OTT business, is perceived as the stronger of the two. If you actually look at Wall Street, this is not a merger, but it's an absorption. CBS has absorbed Viacom because it's the smaller company. That is not what Sumner Redstone planned when he split the companies in 2005. But in this landscape where you're competing with Disney and Netflix and gigantic, fully integrated entertainment companies, they had to merge back. Like eating a twin in the womb. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it felt like in 2005, the landscape was very much, we're expanding, we're, we're going to have multiple cable networks, we're going to have multiple premium, we're going to have broadcast. And now, because of the arrival of tech companies like Netflix, everyone's kind of consolidating to be able to beef up to compete with a lot of these streamers. Sure, but let's be honest here. I mean, they're going to be about a $30 billion company. I mean, AT&T is $225 billion. I mean, Netflix is way bigger. Disney, all these companies are still way bigger. So the speculation within town right now is that this is only the first step. They're going to have to either buy something or be bought. So what are some of those things that have been floating around? I mean, I think Stars has been a target for a couple of months now, right? Yeah, Stars I think is the big asset that people think is is up for sale. But on a larger scale, I mean, Discovery Communications, which has a huge cable business and a much more global oriented business, they could be either a buyer or a seller. People think that Sony Pictures could end up merging with the CBS assets because the film studio could use the consolidation with another film studio, bring in the Spider-Man franchise and a couple others. And the TV side has been well well documented as an indie studio in this landscape without a direct place to sell to. That's not great. Right. Yeah, and there's a couple of others out there, but then that doesn't even include the digital platforms. I mean, Amazon, if it decides really to go all in on video, I think they're probably going to realize that the current 
structure they have is not an all-in structure. They may want to buy an existing TV structure to attach on to what they have for Prime Video. And same with Apple. Apple thinks they can do original premium content. In a year or two, they may realize how hard that is, and they may say, you know what, we have more money than God. Why don't we just spend $30 billion and bring that in? Which is the way to get the library that we've discussed exactly, frequently yeah. that they don't have. So. They have nothing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're trying to create that. And Netflix you know, was able to sneak up on Hollywood and license all the big franchises for many, many years. But Netflix is really realizing now as people pull those back that they have to create their own franchises and they're spending like nobody's business to do that. That's why Amazon spent $250 million just on the global rights alone for Lord of the Rings, because that's a franchise. Sure. I can't wait for a Lord of the Rings show. Shows multiple, yeah. right? The Lord of the Rings televisual universe is going <laughs> to kill us all. This I, is I all mean, if it's good, <laughs> if it's good, I'm into it. Have you watched Carnival Row yet? I have not watched Carnival Row yet. Okay, it's, I'm interested in that. It's a Tim Goodman review, so uh, uh, so I have not gotten to have it. Have you? I haven't, but are you interested because of the purported fairy sex scenes that are in? Uh, I did not know about that. I'm interested because it seems like a fantasy show that is going to be gritty and violent and could be interesting and i like orlando bloom fairy sex like i think if you were to if you were to do a word cloud for what people talking about this show in my vicinity have talked about fairy sex would be the really really big thing um do we have any sense of what any of this is going to mean for the cw (laughs) that it all comes down to that at all times how does this impact the cw i don't know i mean the cw is basically just a farm team for streaming services right but at the same time they're pulling all of their originals so their netflix deal ended with last season's show so all of this year's new shows batwoman for example will go to hbo max Nancy right, Drew a streaming is going service. To, right. Nancy Drew is going to CBS All Access. But Netflix is the one that helped get shows like Riverdale really pump that up because it mm-hmm. did fine in season one, but people caught up in the off season and then it, it really bolstered it in season two. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing for the CW shows is that they've benefited from this younger audience that Netflix has been able to amass. And maybe those people will follow the shows to the new service. Maybe they won't. Maybe it was that Netflix was stronger than the shows and were bringing people. I mean, we saw that with you where people didn't watch it on Lifetime, but then they watched it on Netflix. My opinion on this is that if HBO Max pulls off what they are planning and has a pretty robust offering, people will upgrade HBO to that, I think. I think to watch Friends, I think to watch premium movies, I think, you know, to watch the CW stuff. Game of Thrones library, it's likely to have Big Bang Theory. And Fresh Prince of Bel-Air repeats. And Two and a Half Men repeats. I mean, those are big libraries. They have, make of the shows what you will, but Big Bang Theory is a massive, massive library. No, no question. I just like the fact that Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is going to be part of the HBO umbrella. That, to me, speaks to something in our current TV universe. So I'm just going to keep mentioning it. Well, I mean, getting back to, you know, to the CW, I mean, the thing that makes sense to me is that right you look at the joint venture between CBS and Warner Brothers and while they make money from these shows on these streaming deals that they do a lot of these shows are licensed internationally I mean so many of them are reboots or or DC property where they're able to sell them internationally and that's instant profit for both studios but that business is not a future business I mean future business is global streaming right and Netflix is really hurting a lot of that international licensing business because they are everywhere. They're global at the same time. 
So, you know, it's still a huge business, but in 10, 15 years, which is what these companies are thinking about, they're not going to be able to sell these shows territory by territory. They're going to either be able to put it on a streaming service that they own that will be in all these countries and will be able to monetize through subscribers, or they're going to license it to somebody else's global streaming service that will do the same. Yeah. Now, are there any other brands that people are excitedly talking about? I think I've seen people talking about the Mission Impossible universe as being a thing that could oh, be God. <laughs> really? And then there are the CSI franchises, et cetera. So what other brands in addition to obviously Star Trek or really and truly, is this just a Star Trek deal? NCIS. Also, CSI is not, you know, anything to shake a stick at. I mean, CSI and NCIS are two of the most globally watched shows in the past couple of decades. I was not maligning those at all. I understand. And it's amazing that we haven't had a CSI that's come back in the past couple of years. So There there has been buzz of one. There has indeed. How many CSIs are on the air right now? None. 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 We are living in a CSI-free world. No, but there world. are like there three, three NCISs. Yeah, three oh, NCISs. Right. Oh, yes, okay. Which isn't the exact same thing, but probably scratches a somewhat comparable itch. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the fact, the fa- and it's been like three or four years since we last had a CSI. How, how, that seems fiscally irresponsible. <laughs> how has that been allowed to, to happen? And apparently this brought down the separate concept of Viacom and CBS, and in order to get it all going again, they had to reform like Voltron. Wow. So we have... We have how many Star Trek shows? Three? There's at least two in the air. There's three with Lower Decks. So there's Discovery, Picard, the Lower Decks animated comedy. There are the short treks, which are the the digital shorts that keep the lights on between seasons of Discovery. They're doing a younger skewing one for Nickelodeon. So there's already the corporate synergy. Nickelodeon's a, a, a Viacom owned network. That would be Starfleet Academy uh, Daycare. It would okay. be sort of the Muppet. Yeah, yeah. There is a Starfleet Academy show in development with Josh Schwartz attached, but it doesn't, we're unclear which Star Trek Babies? Is, is that Star coming Trek soon? I mean, look, Alex Kurtzman has said straight up that that franchise has not done a good enough job about bringing in new viewers to it. So that's why he's making a big push to get younger fans on board early. Damn it, I'm a baby, not a doctor. <laughs> that's, the la- that's the last I have to is say that, on is this that Alec Baldwin as the boss Star Trek baby? I can accept that. <laughs> oh my God. Well, on that note, Matt, thank you so much for All joining right. us. Thank you, guys. Number two. Batting second this week, AMC and ABC both made some interesting hires this week. At AMC, programming chief David Madden will be stepping down from his role that he has held for the past two years as the basic cable network consolidates its studio arm under Sarah Barnett's Entertainment Networks group. Barnett already oversaw BBC America, AMC, IFC, and Sundance. So it's basically a consolidation of the networks group into the studio group, into one giant unit. Over at ABC, Simran Sethi is reuniting with her former Freeform colleague, Carrie Burke, for a new role at the Broadcast Network. In her new role as Exec VP Development and Content Strategy, Simran will oversee the creation of new content strategies for the network, as well as overseeing all of ABC's comedy, drama, and long-form development. So this sounds like a lot. It's because it is. It's a big new job. It's a brand new position that was created specifically for her. And it basically means that ABC is kind of doing the same thing that AMC is doing, where they're overseeing moving all of their content development under one executive. So, Dan, that's a lot. It is. And it's so far very much in the weeds. So let's uh, let's try to make this... 
accessible for people. We know that AMC and the AMC Networks families have been trying to kind of bring together the brands a little bit more. They did it very successfully with Killing Eve, which had an audience on BBC America and then expanded that audience when it moved to AMC simultaneously. And they it grew the audience, yeah. Grew the audience. They were able to do the same with the Discovery of Witches, which was on Sundance TV initially and then migrated also over to uh, to AMC. So, and I mean, all three networks used to have their own independent executives. Jen Caserta ran IFC. Uh, obviously, Madden was a programming chief at AMC and ran the studio. And now this is basically further integration of all three. So basically, you're, what you're seeing is the studio side at AMC will be working directly with the network counterparts. So the marketing department, the PR department, the current department, all of it is going to be working hand in hand with the studio. So it just means more hands on deck and, and one kind of united vision for everything that they're doing. Okay. And so is this basically kind of the future? Because these, you know, sort of the reason why we combine these two things is because they are different executive strategies. And this is not something that as a rule we've seen especially in the case of, of what's happening over at ABC, where for the most part, networks have kind of kept their different development arms separate. So why is now the time for these things to be brought under sort of similar umbrellas? Well, I think you're seeing, as we talked about in the first segment, you're seeing a lot of consolidation. And it's also, it doesn't hurt that it, these are probably also cost-saving moves, especially on the AMC side of things. But with ABC, you, look, you have one executive who is going to be working on with all the departments, comedy, drama, and long form. So there's going to be a shared vision. And I think, look, I think it's a good move. And, and this way you've got you, you basically the way that the studio side is funneling everything. So 20th Century Fox TV, ABC Studios, Fox 21, that all reports into one executive on the studio side. So now you're going to see a version of that taking place at the broadcast network. So basically at, at ABC, you're going to have each department funneling into one executive. Okay. And that makes sense. Why haven't we seen this happening previously? I think previously, I think we did. I think it was another lifetime ago. I think this was an approach similar to something like Warren Littlefield did when he was at NBC, which, by the way, that's where Carrie Burke cut her chops. She worked in the, under Warren there. So this may be a strategy that we're starting to see a little bit of her bringing back to that network. But I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening. I mean, this is a peak TV universe. And I think, you know, the line between hit and, and a miss, especially on the broadcast side, is really hard to determine these days. So maybe if you, by bringing in one exec, and having all of your your other scripted departments report into them, maybe it's a it's a good idea, and maybe it's it's going to help their vision. You know, maybe that helps Carrie execute what her her goal is, which is to bring women back to the network. And you've got one exec who's who's sitting there making sure that all of these shows are are maybe following that vision. Plus, well, I mean, those two are, that that's kind of like a dream team. I'm obviously a little biased here because I I really believe in Carrie Burke and what she's what her vision is at ABC. But I also look at what she she and Simran were able to do back at Freeform, which now you're really seeing the success of that. You know, she's no longer there to take the victory lap, but look at, at some of the shows that they developed together. The Blackish uh, prequel spinoff, that was that was them. You know, the bold type, that was them. This is a good combination. These are both good moves and smart moves. And as for David Madden, he's a smart executive, probably one of the best in the biz. And I think he'll, he'll definitely land somewhere great. So. Uh, and and in the interim, he gave us the term prestige popcorn TV to describe what they were doing at AMC, which I thought was very amusing. And then no one has subsequently mentioned it. So, you know, I uh, that's probably good. I mean, it'd be good if uh, the star's uh, COO got that that memo about premium female. Well, yeah, but prestige popcorn caused nobody any trouble. Premium female, as we've established and discussed, was a bad miscalculation 
more in the explanation of it than in the branding of it I, i'm they, gonna say the branding of it was pretty pretty dumb too i you know i'm not gonna say it was a great idea but it the way it was explained was far worse than <laughs> than what it was because it's not like abc isn't talking about how they're going up after an upscale female audience they just don't say that the reason why women watch their shows with male leads is because the guys take their shirts off yeah. so so i think it was more the delivery of the message than the specific message itself that was the problem there but yes so we will continue to keep an eye on everything that's happening with amc and the entire amc network's family and we will unavoidably be talking plenty about ABC as we go along. Yeah, that takes us to our third segment this week. Dan, it's time for one of your favorites. It's the mailbag. Number three. Our first question this week is a two-parter, and it's always nice to have two-parters because that way we know who things are being directed at. So the first part, this is from Logan Van Sant, who addresses at Leslie in specific, are networks streamers losing any creative input they once had when it comes to high-profile showrunners? With the bidding wars over Benioff, Weiss, and others, are showrunners using that demand to negotiate more or full creative freedom? Question mark. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in this town that has full creative freedom. One of the knocks on the streamers has been that they don't give a lot of notes. I mean, I don't know that that's a knock, but I think it's it used to be one of the bigger appeals. And it's also something that Netflix will sit there and be the first one to say, that's not true. You know, they have a, a rapidly growing development team. I mean, look at how many execs are, are over there now. You, you know, Cindy Holland has been there since day one. Channing Dungey, former ABC Entertainment pres- president, is over there. You know, she's going to be working with Benioff and Weiss on, on a lot of their stuff. I don't think anyone really has carte blanche creative control. And I think the appeal in going there is that you, it's a one-stop shop. You know, if you're Ryan Murphy and you want to do the prom as a as a one-hour movie or a two-hour movie one-shot, Netflix can do that. If you're Shonda Rhimes and you want to do a docu-series about the Hot Chocolate Nutcracker, which is a Debbie Allen uh, traditional musical that, that she does every year, you can do that. That's the appeal. You know, that and, you know, my, piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of cash. So, I mean, I don't think anyone really is losing or, or gaining creative control. I think it's just there's a little more liberty to do a varying degree of, of projects at streamers, specifically Netflix. So, Dan, um, this question also is from Logan. If networks are losing creative control, is that a good thing? Network meddling is often seen as a bad thing, but don't some of the better network execs like FX and HBO contribute positively to the quality of their shows? I think that in a perfect world, we like to believe that networks are steering shows and creative people creatively. And I think that's good. And I, I, you know, it's one of my favorite quotes is the Orson Welles line that the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. And I think that's probably true. If you let people go willy nilly, that's how you end up with episodes of Ozark running 65 minutes to 70 minutes and no one bothering to turn on the lights in any of the rooms because no one is telling them, seriously, this is not what you should be doing. It's not good. And then it's reinforced by Emmy nominations because sometimes Emmy voters have very little taste and that's just the way it is. But we say things like that. And so then it becomes muddied because you don't know, for example, with the various Netflix Marvel shows, whose fault was it that those shows were all 13 episodes when some of them could have been six? Whose fault was it that some of those episodes were running 58, 63 minutes when they could have run 45 or 50? Was it Marvel's fault? Was it Netflix's fault? Who knows? So 
there's that. But even the people who we like and think do a tremendous job of developing and steering, you know, FX, we think FX does a great job of making creative people do great work. FX also allowed Kurt Sutter to make episodes of Sons of Anarchy 75 minutes in the last couple seasons. And nobody said, dude, this is not the best creative direction for your show. Or if someone said that, Kurt Sutter just didn't listen. One or the other, totally fine one way or the other, but it, you know, did not make the show better. But <laughs> FX and HBO are also two of the networks, you know, and I would add Showtime to that, that take the longest approach to development. There are shows that are on the air at Showtime, for example, that were in development for years before they, they hit the air, before they premiered. You know, City on a Hill was like picked up the pilot and then picked up the series. And it didn't, you know, all of that was like a three year process or something insane like that. I mean, that's a very slow and methodical approach to development. And as one of the Showtime execs said at, at, at TCA is, they would rather be slow and measured and get it right than rush it. And I think that's, you know, that strategy, I mean, when, when you're a premium cable network you, where you're not at the constraint of advert, wooing advertisers and selling commercials like a broadcast network is, you have that liberty. But, you know, if you're NBC, you, right now you're rushing to buy scripts because you need to get pilots. You, you have to make pilot pickups and then you have to have a, a new batch of stuff to review by next May. And you have to keep the light on. You don't have the option of saying, OK, we're going to have a couple of weeks where we don't have originals. You, you can't do that. And keeping the lights on is a very important thing for all of these places. Especially in the summer if you're a broadcast network, because you can't do repeats in the summer anymore. Goodness, yeah. goodness gracious. Look at some of the things that the CW is airing this summer because of their commitment to keeping the lights on. And I think there's value in that. It just sometimes doesn't always feel valuable when I have to watch multiple episodes of several of these. Well, things. that's your own fault, Dan. Uh, you know, a little from column A, a little from column B. But anyway, I, I think bottom line is... Most creative people, and this includes everyone from novelists to TV critics, benefit from having somebody around who's watching them and telling them how to become the best version of themselves. So complete creative control, which is also a myth because it's not like anyone is making their TV shows 100 percent on their own. I mean, you want to see complete creative control, uh, Horace and Pete. Is, is how you get complete creative control. You have Louis C.K. making money, making a show with his friends, with his own money. Self-distributing Self-distributing. That, that is complete creative control. Otherwise, there's really no such thing. Yeah. Well, for our next question, Maurice Walker emails, do the summer press tour goodie bags contain hand warmers or anything to keep to help folks endure the Beverly Hilton's air conditioning? Um, no. Although one very, very nice publicist saw me freezing cold in the ballroom and the next time she was at press tour brought me a pair of fingerless gloves so that I would be warm in the ballroom. Yeah, Thank so, you to that mystery person. So Leslie was typing looking like either Madonna in the early 80s or a hobo, one or the other. I'm not sure which. I, Considering the bags that were under my eyes, I'm probably going to say hobo. I, I couldn't tell necessarily if you looked like you were warmer, but definitely over the course of press tour, we generally tend to get a a hoodie or two, and by the end of press tour, people, half the ballroom is wearing one of those hoodies. So it's very, very cold. This time was extra cold, and yeah. Uh, so, okay, that's the silly question Maurice asked. Not silly, but frivolous, fun. The slightly more serious, but also slightly more fun question is, what are some of your guilty TV viewing pleasures this summer? Leslie? I don't watch anything with guilt because life's too short and I choose not to feel guilt 
Um, at, at least when I can. I mean, I have a Jewish mother, so go figure. What I'm watching this summer, I'm watching a lot of Dodger baseball. I know you're all probably very, very surprised by that. And I've been catching up on Pose. I mean, with, with Press Tour, I kind of fell behind on pretty much everything. So Pose is the one that I spent. I took a couple of days off uh, at the beginning of the week. And that's really what I, what I caught up on. Dan, what about you? What are you watching? I'm, what are you watching for fun? Not that you have to watch. I'm also with you on the don't be guilty about the things you're watching for the most part. Though... During the period where I really was watching Love Island five nights a week for an hour a night, I don't know if guilt was what I was feeling, but something less than pride. How about that? So, yeah, I, I would say that Love Island until press tour started was a less than prideful piece of viewing. As I always say when I'm asked about this, the the thing I watch when I'm turning off my brain when it's when I don't want to watch anything else for work with any possibility of writing about it is I'll watch a House Hunters International episode and I will I will get confused by why people would go to Phnom Penh and announce that they want a traditional house and then get upset because they don't have a full-size Western refrigerator. That is one of my favorite things. And I feel no guilt about that whatsoever, even when I sit and yell at the stupid couples on my TV and tell them that they really badly need to get a divorce. So no guilt. Only some pleasure, and even then, it's mostly a uh, going-to-sleep pleasure. Well, we actually have been uh, binging Happy Endings for like the fifth or sixth time um, before bed. We always watch TV before bed. Usually it's Friends pretty much every day of the year, um, but we've hit, hit pause on, on that you know, umpteenth time rewatch, and now we're doing Happy Endings. The physical comedy on that show was just hilarious. We watched the episode where uh, Casey Wilson walks through a plate glass door, and we must have rewound that scene like three or four times. It's as we did when it aired originally. It's just great. That whole cast is is so fantastic, and the comedic timing and the physical comedy in it is just amazing. So, Who amongst yeah. us has not rewound Alicia Cuthbert eating ribs at least three or four different times? Yeah. Well, wrapping up the mailbag, uh, Brendan Noel writes: Has Netflix a logarithm ever coughed up an original that is as singularly identical to a popular library title? as it sounds like their upcoming Ginny and Georgia will be to Gilmore Girls. He adds, it's clear, for example, that they desperately want Ozark to be the next Breaking Bad, but they are not literally the same show in the way that Ginny and Georgia's logline describes them. Um, and it's, look, that logline is, is pretty identical to the Gilmore Girls, but if I don't know if you want to answer this one, Dan, but I have a quick answer if you don't. <laughs> what is your quick answer? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I mean, that's what happens every year on the development. You know, when you look at, at the broadcast networks, even like, look, we talked about St. Elmo's Fire at the top of the show. The, all that basically is, is a college set version of This Is Us without maybe the, the time jumping back and forth. But it's a, it's a family drama. That's what that is. So whenever something else gets hot, everyone rushes out to, to do it. Look, when Empire w was just a hit, when it first came out, everyone started looking to the big soaps. Big, big, big soaps, big names at the top of the call sheet. And This Is Us is working, so you're starting to see a lot more family dramas. What's the one on ABC whose title I can never remember? Uh, a million, million little... little things and pieces yeah, and stuff. Yeah, that thing, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the same show with a, with a different twist. I mean, because, it, you know, it's not how did how did Jack die. It's how did this dude commit suicide? What what prompted him to commit suicide, you know? Look, this is exactly what's happening that, that you're seeing with, with a show like Ozark and probably what you're seeing with, with Jenny and Georgia. But this is still not striking while the iron is hot. It's like, okay, we have the statistics that say that people who use our service really like Gilmore Girls and we know that 
the creator and stars of Gilmore Girls are all busy. <laughs> so with deals elsewhere. Yeah. So, so what? So what can we do that sort of scratches a very, very, very comparable itch without the availability of Amy Sherman Palladino? Well, let's do something that's basically the same. I, I don't think they are likely to discover that it is a easily reproducible formula and i think they will probably discover that there's more to it than simply former teen mom now grown up raising teenage daughter in new england i i think i mean look how many shows are you know after friends came out how many shows were basically ensemble comedies about a group of friends but that's a a, that's a way vaguer thing though i mean that's that's friends you know and then shows about friends. I this mean, Happy is, Endings is a version of that. It's absolutely a version of that. But and keep in mind that the year that Happy Endings came out, it came out the same year as Perfect Couples and Traffic Light, which were all the exact same show and that all had fans. I don't want to say a lot of fans, given that two of them were canceled immediately and the third one was kept on the air for three seasons by the grace of, you know, ABC slash God. But they were still close enough to the exact same show. And and honestly, each one really did have some virtues to it. So this happens with some frequency. This seems very, very blatant, though. <laughs> well, that wraps up our mailbag segment. Here's a reminder, as Dan said uh, at the top of the show, if you have questions for us, please drop us an email at TV's Top 5. That's number 5 at THR.com. We look forward to hearing from you. That takes us to our next segment. And we should note that this segment was recorded August 2nd before... Pop TV was part of the CBS Viacom merger. Number four. For our next segment, this is the man who saved one day at a time after Netflix's stunning cancellation. He's the man who brought critical darling and Emmy-nominated comedy Schitt's Creek to U.S. audiences. We're thrilled to welcome Pop TV president Brad Schwartz to TV's Top 5. Welcome, Brad. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Yeah. Brad has been with Pop TV since 2013, when the basic cabler was then known as the TV Guide Network. At the time, it was a co-venture between Lionsgate and CBS. In the past few years, TV Guide Network was rebranded as Pop and became fully owned and operated by CBS. Schwartz is a former exec at MTV and Fuse and has been responsible for populating the network with scripted originals, including Schitt's Creek, the recently renewed Flack, starring Anna Paquin, and its latest critical favorite, Florida Girls. Let's start with Schitt's Creek, Brad. I mean, what has that show done for pop? You know, there are uh, there are a few shows that we can all point to in TV history that uh, helped define a network. That were weren't just great shows, but defined a network. I think Mad Men on AMC is a great example, and then smaller networks, Portlandia on IFC or Project Runway on Lifetime. Orphan Black on BBC America, followed by Killing Eve. I mean, there are shows that have gone beyond just being a great show, but have created a network. Or even when you think of Netflix, Orange is the New Black and House of Cards. So that show is our Mad Men. It is the show that brought attention to our network so that we could generate more revenues, generate more ad sales, do more shows, and strive to find shows that are as good and can follow up with Schitt's Creek which um, I think we've done with One Day at a Time, and it certainly seems like we're on our way with Flack and Florida Girls. Well, a lot of those networks you mentioned, I feel like when they had those shows, there was almost immediate recognition that those were the shows that were putting them on the map. 
when it comes to Schitt's Creek, I don't feel personally as if it was that immediate. When do you feel like you realized, okay, this actually is a show that we can build a network around? Yeah, so I, I thought that way right from the very beginning, but you are exactly right. And I think a lot of that has to do with being a smaller, off-the-radar network. AMC was a big channel before Mad Men kind of defined their future. We were a very small channel with small marketing resources and a totally rebranded, fresh channel. And, you know, audience expectation is everything, and track record and credibility is everything. And if I were Showtime, you know, to, for example, I and I said, we have the CBS family. That's right. I'm just, that's why I'm using them as an example. If we were Showtime, for example, and we said, we have this brand new show coming called Shit's Creek. Everyone would have paid attention from day one. It would have had a $10 million marketing campaign. Everyone would have been like, oh, my God, this is Showtime's great new comedy. And a lot of attention would have come to it, I think, maybe right from the start. Because we were a smaller network that people hadn't heard of, and it was the old TV Guide network, I think people didn't know quite yet to, oh, I'll get to that. You know, that, I'll get to that later. Um, I've got all these other shows to watch. I'll get to it later. But somewhere along the way, I think that allowed the show to build an audience to have people become evangelists for the audience, to have people be like, no one jammed this show down my throat. I found it because somebody else told me about it, and nobody else knows about this show, and now I'm going to go talk to everybody about this show because it makes me feel good to share it. And it also gave the creators the freedom to grow a show the way they wanted to make the show without thinking of ratings pressures, without thinking of some big network noting them to death. And so I actually think this show became the show it is today and the success that it is today totally organically, totally authentically, that they were able to create a show the way they wanted and audiences were able to find it and evangelize about it and become passionate about it without it being like, ooh, this is the next big thing. So when I look back and kind of think of the case study of this show, you're exactly right. It took years and years and years of almost like compounded interest where it just kept growing and growing and people. And then, you know, there's such easy ways to catch up on programming these days that you can hear about something four seasons in and go back. And whether it's on Netflix or Roku or on VOD or on whatever it is or on EST, be able to go back and catch up so easily. And all of those factors came together to get this show to where it is today. And now today it is an Emmy nominated. Four time Emmy nominated. Yes. yes. For best series and for, for its stars. Can you talk a little bit about what those Emmy nominations have done for you guys? And, you know, from a, an insidery perspective, I mean, some of these networks, you know, we see what Netflix does when it comes to Emmy campaigning. They literally took over a massive building. Yeah. Like you, you drive down in L.A. and you see this thing yeah. and it's I can't describe it. I mean, it's that big. But, like, did you really actively campaign for this, or was this genuinely a word-of-mouth Emmy nomination that came from people's love of the show? Uh, a little bit of both. We certainly wanted to campaign. We certainly wanted to do the best we could to make sure that this was in the Emmy conversation. But we don't have the ability to buy buildings, right? We always say at POP, it's like, you know, we might not be able to outspend you, but we can outwork you. And this show has been a labor of love for our whole company. When you're a network's number one show, you're getting not just an outsized proportion of budgets, you're getting an outsized proportion of attention. You're just getting more people working on your show. You have a press team that will not stop until Colbert books you, or Fallon books you, or Vanity Fair does a two-page spread on you. It's, uh, and I've always said it's so much better to be a smaller network's number one show than a bigger network's number eight show. 
And so when it came to the Emmys, yes, we spent a little bit of money to make sure there was an ad in Hollywood Reporter. We actually had a gorgeous ad in Hollywood Reporter with a little key that had the episodes on it. But but we don't have the budgets that everybody else had. So I think as a combo... You're not not driving around Los Angeles seeing billboard after billboard after billboard. We had no billboards. Yeah. Yeah, no billboards. But we also made sure that Oh, we had a cover of Ad Week in the middle of the Emmy window. We made sure we had Dan Levy on The Ellen Show that aired in during the Emmy window. We tried to do some things like that to just make sure that there were always these little things happening that reminded you of the show because we weren't on the air. But on top of that, the fan passion for the show is what drove the show. The love that people have for the show is just, I think, almost underestimated in the industry. Um, you can look at Nielsen ratings on pop, you don't know the numbers of how it does on Netflix. We have some Nielsen numbers on that. But we see the EST numbers. We see the VOD numbers. We see the numbers on our app. We see the numbers from Roku. We see the numbers from Netflix, whether you believe them or not. We knew, I mean, that at this point, millions of people have seen every episode. And when they do, they do a live tour, the cast, where they literally just sit on stools and play games with the audience, talk about the audition process. It's a wonderful show. They do such a great job of it, but it's not nothing unlike what you've seen at TCA before. And they sell out the Beacon Theater at $150 a ticket in 48 hours. And then they had to do a second show in New York at Town Hall because the Beacon Theater sold out so fast. They do two shows here in LA at the Wiltern, sells out in a week. We did a Television Academy screening uh, for the Emmys, and there were 100 people that couldn't get in. We knew that there was something going on. Our press team, our marketing team went into the office at 7 a.m. the morning of the announcements because we knew we had a shot. It's not like we we knew it was a long shot, but uh, we knew we had a shot. Well, now, from your point of view, coming at this from the pop side of the equation, when you hear all the stories talking about the Netflix effect surrounding this show. What is your combination of obviously feeling gratitude that Netflix obviously contributed, but also wanting to make sure that people understand, oh, no, no, we were already building momentum for this show in our world? Yeah. I mean, early in our run, after the first season, two se- we knew we had a special show, and we knew that not enough people were finding it. We knew we had a really special show, but we had a network that people had maybe never heard of. It's just a a year, year and a half old rebranded network. We knew it was a a channel that people weren't used to coming to. And we knew we had a really special show. So we were like, how do we get more people to watch it? How? We can only spend so much in marketing every year. And even then, you're trying to get people to watch a show they hadn't heard of on a network you might not have heard of. This is, you know, where we were five years ago. So we were like, if we could hand out DVDs on the corner, we would, right? Just watch this, watch this, watch this. So uh, we did a deal. We sold the show uh, to Netflix. And, and, and frankly, it wasn't even for that much money. It was more of a marketing thing for us that we thought a way of giving the show added exposure. We put the show on EST so you could buy it on iTunes and everything. We have all rights, so we put all of these episodes up on demand. If you go to the on-demand folder of your cable, all five seasons are there. Very rare in television. You know, usually you have a rolling five or some terrible experience like that. All five seasons are up on demand in the on-demand. All five seasons are on our app. All the seasons are on Netflix. They're now on Roku. Um, There'll be another announcement in a couple of days of another AVOD platform that you can watch it on. That was a conscious strategy to get more people to put it in more places and revenue opportunity for us, for sure. To answer your question, I think that in this case, Netflix is almost like, you know, a library. That the reason you've heard of this show 
is because at this point, we've spent over $30 million marketing this show when you think of the five seasons that have happened. And just to put that by yeah. comparison, what would a marketing budget for the season costs? Well, I think if we, you know, I don't like to talk about it, but, but if you take the number I just said and divide by five, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I just kind of gave the secret away. Um, but, you know, but you have other networks that spend $10 million, you know, launching a show. But again, it was uh, our number one priority show. But on top of that, our press team getting them bookings on all the morning shows and all the late night shows and all the magazines and getting all the press and everything. If you heard of the show, you heard of the show because of something Pop did. And... If somebody's talking about the show, it's because they heard it somewhere, they saw it somewhere, or somebody saw it somewhere, and they're talking about it. Now, I want to go see that show. Convenience always wins. And Netflix is in a super convenient and wonderful platform without ads, great way to binge, great way to catch up. And they're certainly part of the story. Schitt's Creek is a rare show where, on our platform... The show has grown every single season. Season two is bigger than season one. Season three is bigger than season two, four, three, five, four. Every single year has gotten bigger. And that is because of the ease of how easy it is to catch up. And Netflix is certainly part of where you can go catch up. And we have to fight the problem that some people think, well, a lot of people think it's a Netflix show. And so that's where in our marketing, we have to figure out how to get people back to us, you know. You've experienced it there, but the new season's over here. Look, some, and it's not just a pop problem. Some people think Riverdale's a Netflix show, right? It's like, it doesn't matter how, I mean, and the CW's huge, and they're broadcast. Yeah, I mean, David Nevin stood on the TCA stage maybe, what, two years ago, saying that most people think Shameless, which is one of Showtime's biggest and most watched originals, yes. most people think it's a Netflix original. So looking ahead, obviously, Schitt's Creek has been renewed for a sixth and final season, yes. will air in 2020, mm-hmm. given these Emmy nominations, mm-hmm. And the attention that the show is, is you know, it, it's broken through officially. Yep. Officially. Have you had any conversations with the cast and the creative team about maybe finding some kind of way to another season or a spinoff or some way to keep this franchise going? Uh, I mean, as a television executive, <laughs> right, continuing to work with Dan Levy on something is something we would love to do, right? Uh, we have created a wonderful success together. And to back up, Dan and I have worked together for 12 years. You know, I, when I was running MTV Canada, we put him on TV. He was a starving artist and, and became a host of MTV Canada. And we went on to a lot of great success together. We did the first after show ever made for The Hills. Do you remember The Hills after show? Do you remember that? So, uh, so Dan... So you're the guy responsible for the after show thing. Yes, Because thanks right. a lot for that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember we Chris, did it? Chris Hardwick owes You'll you a couple million bucks, man. People made fun of us. Like we were, we did the people were like, hold on a second. You're making a show about another show? <laughs> You're making a show that talks about another show? It makes no sense. But uh, that became a huge hit and pioneered huge, a movement that, replicated. you know, whether you like that movement or not, it certainly <laughs> pioneered uh, from Talking Dead to Watch What Happens, whatever it is. But Dan was the host of that show. That's how when Dan came up with this idea with his dad, he brought it to me because we had worked together and I was now running a U.S. network. So I've worked with him for 12 years. We've had two wonderful successes together. I've bet on him twice and he has delivered crazy success twice. And if there was something we could do together again, I'm the first in line uh, to do it. We've talked about a lot of different things. Dan's star is certainly on the rise, and I know he has wonderful aspirations. So we'll see. 
But I'd love to. Given how competitive this landscape is, where there's three major bidders for Benioff and Weiss out there, everyone's getting you know crazy money with these overall deals. Netflix has driven the price up for so many of these packs, but is that how you keep someone like Dan Levy in, in the family? Considering, I, I would imagine that other outlets with significantly bigger spending budgets I think are that's, probably circling. Yeah, I think that's the advantage of now being part of CBS, right? We now have a studio. We now have Showtime. It's not just little joint venture pop TV anymore. Right. That so, was best known for repeats of Dawson's Creek that's right. and ER. Big Brother After Dark. Big Brother After Dark. Jeez. Come yeah. on. <laughs> Listen, uh, you want to judge my viewing patterns, I will judge yours. <laughs> but uh, those are the opportunities that we can, you know, now do with talent and compete with talent for. Is and, that something that you're in talks with him for? Uh... <laughs> Maybe. Good question. Yeah. Good question. I, who wouldn't be? Yeah. He has exactly. he has created one of the best shows in all of television. He's young. He's a mega talent, uh, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. He's a great leader. Uh, his co-actors and and people love him. Who wouldn't want to work with him? I think he's going to go on to a a Ryan Murphy, Shonda Rhimes type of career. I think he's going to be one of the one of the great showrunners. We talked about how sort of the benefit of Netflix to Schitt's Creek was the convenience factor and that, you know, it's just really easy for people to watch. So when it comes to something like One Day at a Time, where despite that convenience factor, mm-hmm. they weren't able to get an audience for that show. What allegedly. You, allegedly. Allegedly. We would allegedly. have no idea. What We're about is, to find out. <laughs> <laughs> we are. <laughs> but how much of your intellectual process is trying to figure out, okay, well, how didn't Netflix get an, an audience for this and what are we going to do differently? That is a, I mean, I have many answers for this because we've, you know, this was a huge swing for us. And so we thought of every angle and did all the research and everything that you could possibly do before just diving in. It wasn't a spur of the moment decision to go do that. There are things that don't work on Netflix. Uh, They haven't been able to make late night talk work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe a very broad multicam sitcom. They don't really have a lot of experience with original multicam. And the, yeah, and the ones they've tried, they've canceled very quickly. I yeah. think All About the Washingtons was like one and done. There's a couple Dramas, more. Dramas, yeah. single camera comedies, quirky, niche, smart. I mean, they try a lot of different things. You know, like I said, they haven't been able to make late night talk work or a daily thing work. And maybe this isn't the right platform for um, for a multicam, you know, very broadcast level, you know, uh, comedy. But there's also a point of what might not be big enough for Netflix could be the biggest thing that Pop's ever done, right? (laughs) You know, when we look at numbers of how that show performed on Netflix, and we're getting Nielsen numbers, right? So you have to take them all with a grain of salt. But directionally, you can look at them. And directionally, we can compare them to Schitt's Creek numbers. So whether they're right or whether they're wrong, we can compare them to whether the Schitt's Creek numbers are right or wrong. And what we saw was a similar-sized audience for those two shows on Netflix. And if for some reason One Day at a Time can perform like Schitt's Creek on pop, then we have a massive pop hit on our hands. But it was more than that. That was the data analysis that kind of went into it. I don't know if they marketed it very well. I don't know if the creative for it was, you know, wonderful and breakthrough. We've done some uh, awareness research on it. I think only about 25% of Netflix subscribers were even aware of it. 
So yeah. I mean, that's the knock on Netflix with the binge model is you basically get a weekend of coverage and then it's gone and then it's next to the you know 700 other originals that right. get marketed right next and then it's a, yeah. a giant factory of content. Yeah, and I and I'm not and I'm not trying to knock their marketing or their their skill or their algorithm. I'm just saying there was a show that we loved that we thought had a lot of life in it. And only 25% of their subscribers know about it. So if we could kind of do a Shit's Creek thing and build it and build it and build it and get them booked on late night talk shows and all the morning talk shows and get the press. Somehow and get Rita Moreno that Emmy nomination that she hadn't <laughs> gotten for that show. Not that she needs more awards. <laughs> right. You know. The EGOT winner. You know, she's fine. Um, uh, but yeah push at the Emmys, talk about it constantly, have an entire company devoted to the show. I think there's a lot of life and a lot of growth left in it. But it also came down to it fits us so well. You know, a lot of the thing that we're trying to build with our brand is our channel, our, our brand should feel always familiar. That's why when you come to it, you have 90210 and Melrose Place and ER and like shows you grew up with that, that kind of make you feel good. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dawson's Creek. And it's not an accident that, you know, when we looked at a show like Shit's Creek, it's like, oh my God, you have the dad from American Pie and the mom from Beetlejuice and Home Alone. Or for us older people, obviously SCTV and, and that stuff. But that show felt very on brand. It was uh, very on brand for us. And One Day at a Time is also, A, it's based on a title that we all know. And Rita Moreno is in it, another great star that you can book and get press for. But it's such a show to be proud of. It's so funny. It's so good. It's a lot of people's favorite show. It's not a bunch of people's eh show. It's a lot of people's favorite show. And again, when you think of where you are in this ecosystem as a smaller network, the effort it gets to get somebody to come to your platform to watch a show, it's got to be worth the trip. And so it's got to be someone's favorite show. And we knew that we have a huge head start with this one, unlike starting Schitt's Creek from scratch five seasons ago. We have a huge head start. We love the show. It's a show to be proud of no matter what its ratings are. It deals with such wonderful issues and inclusion and love and acceptance. A lot of the things that, is, that has made Schitt's Creek such a special show. It deals with family. It deals with, deals with single you know, mom head of household issues. It deals with alcohol issues. It deals with veteran issues. It's such a show to be proud of. And we feel like when you come to Pop in 2020 and you have 14 weeks of Schitt's Creek and then you have 13 weeks of One Day at a Time, it's going to be a pretty special start to the year for us. And uh, we'll find a big audience for it, I promise. So you've got those two shows yep. kicking off your 2020. And yep. then you've got Flack, which was just renewed for season two. Yep. Um, Florida Girls, presumably strong reviews, possibly hasn't officially been renewed yet, but I would presume that'll come back. Then you just picked up another comedy called Best Intentions about a single father working as a guidance counselor at his son's high school. Um, By the how, guy who created and wrote American, American Pie. Pie. So again, there's that nostalgia right factor, that, that familiarity factor. So how would you describe Pop's comedy brand and what kind of content you're looking for? And has the success of Schitt's Creek and the awareness of Run One Day at a Time helped you? Like, are you is your phone ringing more with, with producers and agents oh. calling you and saying, I have a show that's perfect for your network? How has that, that, that success changed? That you can you? get an Emmy nomination on pop, right? Like, you, you look at the Emmy nominations, it's, it's Netflix, right? It's Netflix, it's HBO, it's Showtime, it's, it's, and then it's pop, right? So, uh, one of these is not like the others. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I mean, a lot of people are realizing, oh my God, they put so much love and care into those shows. And that's all you want as a creator. You just want your show to have a chance. And we'll do four or five original series a year, but all of them will have 
the attention of the whole company. So that's a nice place to be. We're also very creator-driven and creator-friendly. We don't note people to death. And we hire great people. We work with great people. We let them do great things. But to your point about our comedy brand, I think our, our comedy brand is becoming one of ver being very joyous, very, very happy that in, in this complicated world we live in, in these divisive political times that we live in, with a lot of programming on the air that I personally love and watch constantly, but Handmaid's Tale, I mean, dark stuff, you know, on TV, driving a lot of ratings, that there's this, this brand over here where I go over there and I just, I remember the good times in life. I'm happy. It's fun. It's funny. Schitt's Creek certainly ticks that box. One day at a time ticks that box. Best Intentions is going to feel like American Pie on TV. It's uh, not that testing means everything because, you know, testing can, the best tested shows can bomb and the worst tested shows can become huge hits. It's the best testing show of my career. We tested it at CBS's facilities in Vegas. The dials were the highest of my entire career, so we hope, you know, for that. Florida Girls certainly plays off of that broad city. You know, it's kind of a trailer park sex in the city but really socially and, and culturally poignant and, and clever. Again, a, a wonderful female, much like Dan Levy, a wonderful female voice that I think has a huge future. She was a writer and producer on The Mick, and now she's done this based on her own life growing up in a trailer park in Florida. I think she's going to go on and have a massive career. She's, I think, like the next Tina Fey. So working with great people, putting on really joyous, happy comedies. Flack was something we tried a year ago that was darkly comedic and just was really good. And so that one kind of stands out from the other four, but uh, we were so happy to renew it. We added Sam Neill and Daniel Day Kim to an already you know, Oscar-winning uh, Anna Paquin, Oscar-nominated Sophie Okonedo. It's like we had this amazing all-star cast, and we added Kawhi Leonard and Paul George to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but okay, so you're now lumping Flack in with the comedy brand, so that means you don't see Flack as being kind of the start or centerpiece of a drama brand that you want, no, want to have. No, okay. we, we always greenlit Flack as a comedy. It's just a little bit of a darker comedy than the other four, which... Uh, we feel are just very joyous and happy, and it's mid it's middle ground. I'll totally. I mean, you yeah. know, we we do a lot of attempting to define things, and yeah. it's always a flip of a coin. So, what does that mean? Your thoughts are on drama? Is is drama a thing that has value soon? I'm thinking of our development slate. I don't think there's any drama in our development slate. About a year ago, two years ago, we had a few scripts that we were looking at, but no, I think we've made a really nice mark here, and let's stay on it. So talking about your development slate, you know, you've got these, what is it, four or five shows that you're doing now. How much are you looking to grow originals and build off of the anticipation around Schitt's Creek and One Day at a Time? Yeah. So we'll, you I mean, next year we'll have 52 weeks of originals. We'll be an, uh, an original episode on the air pretty much every week of the year. So that's five series times 10 episodes minimum. I mean, Schitt's Creek's 14 and One Day at a Time's three. So we get to 52. So it's nice to always have something to market, always have something to promo, always have audiences. Very much like the old days of, of HBO and Showtime where, you know, one series would end and another would begin and one series would end another begin. So I think our 2020 is going to look really strong with a sixth season of Schitt's Creek, a fourth season of One Day at a Time, and then sophomore seasons of Flack and potentially not announced yet, Florida Girls, and then a new one in Best Intentions. So we all have different lifespans of, of these shows. And as you get into 21 and 22, you'd love to add 
another two, another get to a place where you have, have like two shows blocks. all the time yeah. at all, uh, you know, throughout the entire year. And now that we're part of CBS and we're going to be able to, you know, dip into the CBS library a little bit more and get used some CBS um, assets a little more, I think we'll grow a lot faster, our revenues will grow a lot faster, and we'll be able to put more original programming on the air. Would that be sort of your preference for Pop, that it would be used more as an opportunity to get different kinds of exposure for shows that are on CBS, for shows that are on, I mean, hypothetically Showtime, you know, the sibling networks, because, you know, we talked with Kelly Call about Love Island, and he said that there had been at least contemplation about trying to give Love Island different platforms, and you guys did a marathon of it, but it's not quite the same? Would you, would you want there to be more integration with your sibling companies? Absolutely. Um, 100%. Especially, I mean, who knows, you know, where this potential merger goes that we're that we're all hearing about and reading about. But beyond that, for Pop to be a big CBS general entertainment network with a comedy original series brand would be a wonderful place to be. There's a lot of assets across the CBS and Showtime company that aren't fully being monetized. There's repeats of the Grammy that are available. There's the Love Island Marathon that we did. Uh, we already do Big Brother After Dark for Big Brother. There's a library of CBS content that isn't fully being monetized. So I do, I do believe that there's a lot of opportunity now for us to uh, comb the company for assets that we can monetize and grow our network with and then make more original content that, you know, maybe our original content stays within the ecosystem. We'll see how that all grows, but I do think there is, every major media company can use a, a 80 million household general entertainment platform like NBCS USA or TNT and TBS or whatever it is, and I think that's the kind of growth trajectory we could have. So. You also have CBS TV Studios. It's run by David Staff, who's yep. a very good executive. Um, the best. So Staff, part of his mandate the last couple of years of what we've seen him execute is they're now selling to premium cable, to streaming, yep. not just within the CBS fold, but they're, they've gone from just simply supplying the broadcast network with content to really expanding to sell. They've got a couple shows at Netflix, et cetera. So if you look at that talent roster, they've got people based there like Alex Kurtzman, who of course does all the Star Trek shows for All Access and beyond. But when you look at that roster of showrunners and you look at the amount of IP that CBS has access to, Twilight Zone original library, which mm-hmm. is uh, on All Access, yep. but is there something or someone, a showrunner, that you envision? Like You're talking with David Nevins, who right. oversees all of this. Yeah. What do you go up and say, this is my Christmas list, I want this producer on this network, I want this reboot, I want XYZ. What would that list look like? Um, I mean, one of the obvious ones that does have an overall deal at CBS and I think is so on brand for us and so wonderful and so clever uh, is Rachel Bloom. You know, and we actually have two projects in development with her through CBS Studios. And she's just, she's wonderful. But yeah, we should be looking internally. We should be. Um, you know, I want Netflix to cancel Dead to Me so we can get that one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good, luck, good luck with that one. I think that was one of the ones that they counted that like, what, 40 million people watched 30 seconds yes, of seven yes. minutes of its first episode within the first right. 16 seconds of its debut billions or something insane. Billions. Right, it's amazing. Um, I joke because that's a CBS, yeah. you know, production, CBS Studios production. Um, yeah, and the showrunner Liz Feldman has a deal there. Yeah. yeah, and I love, and it's amazing. So I, I kid, I kid. But what I don't kid about is, could the next Dead to Me from CBS Studios come to pop? And we should be looking internally. And you're right, David Staff and his team are amazing, and they have a lot of great overall deals and a lot of great talent. 
in-house, and we should be a, a platform that maybe just you know does things at different price points. You know, Showtime can do projects at their price points, and CBS can do projects at their price points, and CBS All Access can do projects at their price points, and then we can be the Blumhouse. We can be the indie part of a major studio. You can make your $100 million blockbusters, and we'll make the $8 million get out. That doesn't mean that our movie doesn't make more, but we can just think differently about content because we have to, but also we should be able to produce content at various price points across the company, and we can just be the scrappier, more you know, strategic and innovative way of, of doing people's passion projects, of doing um, maybe being a little bit of a farm team and somebody has a great idea, but it's not big enough for you know, a broadcast network. We can go give it a try. And uh, maybe one day we're so lucky that a show that starts on Pops, you know, graduates to CBS. I mean, who knows? But yeah, I'm, I'm excited to work with CBS Studios and find projects for us to do together that the company owns and can monetize everywhere. Yeah. Wrapping up, I'm curious, too, you know, one of the things that staff likes to tout is that that studio offers something for everyone, right? If they want to make a YA show, they can sell it to the CW. If you want to make a streaming show, you've got all access. Premium, you've got Showtime, obviously the broadcast network. But have you started to hear from showrunners or other execs in the industry that I have a show that should be on pop? Yeah. Yes. Has that and changed it, in the last couple of months? It has. It, it really has. Um, the first job I ever had in this industry, I started as Lorne Michaels' assistant at Saturday Night Live, um, bringing him, uh, you know, coffee and popcorn. You just buried the lead there. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first job. Uh, me and my Ivy League degree went and became a, you know, assistant to Lorne Michaels. But I learned television from him, and he became a mentor, and I got an MBA in television working for him. And uh, we've stayed in touch, you know, over the years, but I hadn't heard from him in a few years. And just last week, I get a call from Lauren Michaels, my assistant, Lauren Michaels on the line. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, uh, and I picked up the phone. He's just calling to congratulate, you know, us on, on the Emmys for Schitt's Creek and let me know how much he loves the show and how he thinks it's genius and how he, it's a, a, one of the gems on television. I immediately fired off an email to Eugene and Dan. I was like, Lauren Michaels just called and loves our show. But, you know, like, like I said, I haven't heard from him in a few years and, and he reached out. When I see tweets from the producers of One Day at a Time, and some of those tweets are, you know, Pop TV is legit. I could not be more happy about our new platform and where our show is going. This, they care about their, their you know, they, they just got four Emmys. What a great home for our show, right? So it is doing that. It is, I think you have Schitt's Creek, you have One Day at a Time, you have two credible hits that now... When we tell you about Florida Girls or when we tell you about Pest Intentions, um, my hope is that people be like, oh, I should check that out, you know, where maybe four years ago you wouldn't have. It would, it would kind of sat on your pile under all the FX stuff. Right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, we're certainly on a roll. You know, working with David Nevins has been a, a dream, and a lot of this role is coinciding with us being, you know, working for him and being a part of CBS and Showtime. And... I have to give a lot of a lot of credit, you know, to you know everything you've seen happen lately is certainly based off a lot of conversations and support that I've had with David Nevins, and so I can't thank him enough. And I think we have a bright future. That sounds like a perfect place to uh, wrap up. Thanks so much for <laughs> for joining us to talk all things pop, Brad Schwartz. Ah, thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, thank Brad. You. Likewise. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the critics' corner. 
This week's new arrivals include Mindhunter on Netflix, HBO's The Righteous Gemstones, and I Ship It over at The CW. Dan, what you got? There's some good options this week, but it is not an overwhelming week, which is always nice because really and truly you still need to be catching up on Lodge 49 so that you can watch the new season. You need to make sure that you're watching Succession, etc., etc. So good. Season two is so good. It Succession. is absolutely terrific. It. And I think that season two of Lodge 49 is also excellent. So watch those. Also watch David Makes Man from Own last week. So lots of good stuff from last week. This weekend... Mindhunter was not sent out to critics nationwide, but there were fan screenings in New York and Los Angeles that critics were able to attend. So I've seen three episodes of Mindhunter, and it is it's very good. And it's a show that I, I just don't know. I don't want to say Netflix is handling it badly because I feel like a lot of it has to do with David Fincher just being a very particular kind of auteur. So maybe it's David Fincher who's handling it badly. This is a better show than its sort of quiet buzz justifies. It, it is a tense, disturbing, wonderfully acted period show. And I, I feel like it kind of keeps slipping under various radars because they're unable to basically push the entire season out to critics. And so critics can't be talking about how it's one of the better shows on TV. So the three episodes I've seen are very good, basically picks up where the last season uh, left off. First three episodes are directed by Fincher. They look great. They're fairly fast moving compared to the beginning of last season, which some people thought was a little slow. There's a lot of stuff happening this season, a lot of new serial killers to to interview. I have yet to see Damon Harriman as Charles Manson, but he's apparently coming up in a couple episodes. And since he was only in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for about 10 seconds, I'm looking forward to seeing more of him. It's a really good show. And then also this weekend, you have The Righteous Gemstones on HBO. It's airing after Succession, and it's actually a lot like Succession. It is a dysfunctional comedy about a group of horrible, rich people who are also a family and also would probably wish each other dead. It comes from Danny McBride, who, of course, uh, co-created Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. And it's a lot like those shows where it starts off in a very coarse, broad place, and then it kind of sneaks up on you with its little bits of humanism and Everybody involved is very committed. It's an amazing cast. So it's Danny McBride. It's Adam Devine. It's John Goodman. Walton Goggins pops up in the second or third episode, and he's just remarkable. It will not be for everyone in the exact same way that those other Danny McBride shows were not for everyone. And I am not really the core audience for it, but I liked a lot of this and I liked a lot of the performers. And I, I do think it's a very good companion for Succession if you really just want to spend about 90 minutes on your Sunday night hating other people's families. So there are a couple decent shows and again, plenty to catch up on. Well, that sounds like a good place for us to wrap up. We'll be back next week with more highlights and guests from TCA and the latest news and headlines. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We remind you that you should subscribe to our podcast on all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a review. You can always say hi to us on Twitter. We like to hear from you. And... For, I think, the third time this podcast, if you have mailbag questions or just want to address questions, comments, or concerns at us, you can email us at TV's top 5 that's the number five, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.